Hello and welcome to the Grace Place NYC. We are a church in the neighborhood of Hamilton Heights in Harlem. Our purpose is to live for Christ, love the lost, and transform our culture. The title of my message today is You Messy. So what I want you to do, I want you to look, <laughs> I want you to look at your neighbor and tell him, you messy. Yeah, you are. Pliny the Elder was a first century Roman author and natural philosopher who wrote the Encyclopedia Natural History, and he said this about ancient eagles. Some kinds of eagles do battle with stags, which are male deer. They roll in the dust to gather it on their feathers, then perch on the stag's horns and shake the dust into its eyes until it falls. All of us have had dust in our eyes or an eyelash fall into our eyes before, right? And what happens? It starts to water. It starts to burn. You start itching your eyes and then you can't think about anything. You can't focus until you rinse whatever is in your eyeballs out so that you have relief from whatever's in your eyes. I remember a few years ago we were at the beach and uh, we were all sitting there and and this kid decided that he was going to dust off his towel right in front of my son, Boston. So he dusted the towel off and all of the sand got in his eyes and it was terrible. We literally had to spend 30 minutes trying to rinse his eyes out because, I mean, he had so much sand built up in his eyes. It was just absolutely awful. And I say that to say this, the enemy wants to blind us to the truth in order to bind us to a lie. Let me say that again. The enemy wants to blind you to the truth in order to bind you to a lie. This is how the enemy attacks us. This is how the enemy attacks us through culture. This is how the enemy attacks the church. He tries to blind you and I to the truth so that we'll connect to some lie and we'll start going in the wrong direction. Ezekiel chapter 28, starting in verse 16, says this, By the abundance of your trade, you are internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane. From the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would anoint this word. I pray, Lord, over our hearts that we would be ready to receive this word. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the prophet Ezekiel speaking a message from God against the ruler of Tyre. What is unique about this passage is that Ezekiel is not only speaking against the king of Tyre, he also starts to speak to the power behind the king of Tyre, which is Satan himself. It's one of the few times we hear about Satan before and during his fall. Here's what one commentary says concerning the part of the passage that says, Satan was filled with violence by the abundance of his trade says this, one of the elements of Satan's sin was his widespread dishonest trade. The word for trade comes from the verb rakal, which means to go about from one to another. Now, does this mean that Satan is operating a literal business where he is extorting and taking advantage of people? Of course not. What Ezekiel is saying is that Satan uses people to further his ideals and further his purposes, just like he was using the king of Tyre in this particular passage. 
the evil, God-dishonoring ideas that have circulated through our culture and are being pushed through political means and entertainment means. This is the devil infiltrating his message through people. This is how the devil works. He's doing his business through people that do not know Jesus and are willing to believe his lies. Satan's greatest form of temptation is deception. Satan's greatest form of temptation is to use deception on our lives. Satan's evil ways were birthed out of pure deception. In verse uh, 17 that I just read, it tells us that Satan's heart was lifted up because of his beauty and he was deceived into thinking that he could actually be God. Since the moment he was evicted from heaven, he has deceived person after person into thinking that they can be God. Satan is in the big business of deception, trickery, counterfeits, and craftiness. Amen? The devil is a liar, and Jesus knew it. In John chapter 8, starting with verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, he was talking, actually he was talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Verse 47, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. For most of us in here, our first language is English. For those of you who are like my parents who may have immigrated here from another country, maybe there is something else that is your mother tongue. But Jesus tells us here that the devil's mother tongue is lie. He speaks the language of lie. That's the only language he knows. That's his first and only language. Every time the devil opens up his mouth, you can guarantee that it is not the truth. The problem with the language of lie is that it is a universal language that all can understand and all can be duped by. Just like my analogy of the eagle rolling in the dust before it attacks its prey so that it can shake its wings, fling dust into its victim's eyes before it moves in to the kill, the devil does the exact same thing to you and I in order to deceive us and to keep us from the truth. Because if you can't see, if you've got something in your eyes, if you've got dust in your eyes, an eyelash in your eyes, sand in your eyes, you are completely vulnerable to the elements around you. You are completely vulnerable to anybody that would try to attack you. Could you imagine a blind person getting into the ring with Mike Tyson in his prime? Like, could you imagine that? Those of you who are old enough to, to have, have watched any of his boxing matches or, or highlights when he was in his prime, he was a terrifying figure. You could see the fear in his opponent's eyes as soon as they got into the ring because they understood 30 seconds into this match, I'm going to be on the mat and I'm not getting back up. 
And that's people with good vision, right? Could you imagine getting into the ring with them and you're completely blind and vulnerable and you have no way of seeing the punches come? You have no chance. And that's what it's like when we are blinded to the truth of God's word. Sadly, many believers have dust in their eyes that are keeping them from being able to see the truth clearly. The biggest form of deception I believe the enemy uses in the life of a believer is to get us to justify our sins. Do you hear that? I believe that the biggest form of deception that the enemy uses inside the church is to get Christians, Jesus followers, to justify the sin in our lives. Just like the serpent lied to Adam and Eve in the garden and made them think that disobeying God was going to give them freedom, right? That's what he does to you and I as well. So what I want to do, I want to uh, spend the next few moments talking about three ways in which Jesus' followers justify sin. So the first way that we justify sin is by calling it legalism. We call sin legalism. Okay, Galatians 5 and 1 says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul is telling the Galatians that Christ freed you from your slave master, Satan. So don't go back to him. Stay free. Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, he has set you free. So you do not need to go back into enslavement to anything. Because there were people in the Galatian church during that time that were trying to earn their salvation by trying to continue to keep the Old Testament law and the Old Testament covenant specifically that in order to be justified and saved, they were teaching that you had to have circumcision. Okay, And so Paul is saying that you were freed from the law through the death of Christ. So stop trying to go back to a merit-based salvation. Because you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot pay for your salvation. You cannot be good enough for your salvation. But there is one person that is. And he died for your sins and rose again. So this is how he begins this chapter. But then let's look at what he says in verse number 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. Paul, in the first part of this chapter, warns the Galatian church not to become enslaved to legalism. But in verse 13, Paul shifts gears and talks about another form of enslavement, and that is Christian freedom as a license to sin. Paul rightly says that we were called to freedom, but not to turn our freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. The Greek word for opportunity in this verse was often used to refer to a central base of military operations. That's what this word operation meant. And that's what the word was used for in many ways in the Greek language. Uh, Paul is saying to not use our Christian liberty and freedom from legalism as a base of operations to now indulge in whatever our flesh wants to do. And I feel like this is a trend in the American church right now. We have gone so far away from legalism that we are now calling holiness legalism, and now we are falling into sin head first. Okay? And we're deceived because we're calling it legalism, so we feel justified in entering into these things. Many Christians claim legalism in order to justify what their flesh wants. Here's what I mean by that. Ladies, okay, I'm going to talk to you for a second. <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, no. 
It is not legalistic to want to date a man that will respect God and will respect your body and wants to stay sexually moral and sexually pure. That is not legalism, okay? That is absolutely not legalism. Fellow believers, it is not legalistic to abstain from alcohol if you have a history in your family of alcohol addiction. That's not legalism. That's breaking generational curses, okay? Being forced to wear dresses to church that go down to your ankles as a form of righteousness, that is absolute legalism, okay? But showing off your body and drawing attention to your body is bad too. Because the Bible talks about modesty and honoring one another's with our bodies. The Bible talks about our body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. These two tensions between legalism and Christian freedom were the very same things that Paul was trying to deal with in the first century church. The second way we justify sin is trying to sanitize it. I don't know about you. This is a bottle of Lysol. What do we do when we don't want to take out the trash? We want to wait a little bit longer. We don't want to walk down five flights of stairs and then another flight of stairs to throw out the trash. We want to get a little bit more time. So we shove that trash down as far as we can. I'm not talking about myself or anything. Even though the wife has told you a couple times to take it out because it stinks. So we shove it down and then what do we do? We bust out the Lysol and we spray it because there's an odor coming out of there because there's old food in there. Maybe if you have children, there's dirty diapers in there. There's all sorts of funk in there and the odors come. And so what we do, so we can, so we have a little bit more time, we start spraying Lysol over that. But what happens? This is disinfectant spray. It kills over a hundred illnesses, illness causing germs. But look, it's only 99.9% .9 effective. So what happens? Because in order to get the odor out of your house, you've got to remove what's causing the odor. But what Christians try to do, we try to sanitize it. We try to spray it down and make it look presentable, right? But it never works because eventually the odor is going to seep back through because what's causing the source of the odor is still there. That chicken from three days ago is still there, okay? That food is starting to rot. And so until you remove it, go down five flights of stairs and then another flight of stairs to throw it in the trash can. Until you do that, it's still gonna stink. Some Christians in an attempt to indulge in the flesh will try and clean up the image of sin. They'll say things like, if you look at it from this angle, okay? If you look at it from this perspective, if you twist some things around and stack some stuff up, it's not as bad as you think. Yeah. Or are you trying to tell me my experience is wrong? Christians are really big into redeeming things for the Lord. Yeah. Okay, if you've been in the Christian world or Christian church for a long time, Christians are big into redeeming things for the Lord. Like redeeming the workplace for the Lord. What that means is we no longer separate the secular from the sacred. Our jobs are vocations in which we bring glory to God in not only what we do, but how we do it. And that is absolutely right. Yeah. But some Christians take it too far, man. They say things like, we're going to redeem sexuality. So they post those sensual pictures on social media, slap a scripture on it, and say, I'm redeeming sexuality. Yeah. It ain't no different from not putting that scripture on it. Okay? Am I being too honest? I'm sorry. Just got to do it today. A friend of mine recently said this to me when talking about this subject. He said, 
we can't redeem things that God didn't create. Christians, we've got to stop trying to redeem things that God never created. You can only redeem things that God initially created. For example, I'm going to get in trouble here, okay, with the, some examples I'm bringing up. So don't get mad at me too bad. You can find my email. You can email me. <laughs> but I'm just going to go for it, okay? I'm just going to go for it. Like, I have a problem with women who pose topless in order to bring awareness to breast cancer. They do it. Or women who post topless in order to promote breastfeeding because they're trying to desexualize the breast. The problem with that is that we live in a fallen world and America is already so generally over-sexualized that regardless of your motives, as pure or impure as they are, whatever that may be, there will be people who objectify your body regardless of your motives. Or we sanitize sin by watching things on television where, there are, where there's graphic sexuality going on, there's things going on that we would never promote, there's values happening that we would never promote, but we justify it, we sanitize it by saying, well, it's just actors playing a part. Yeah. Or it doesn't bother me, so I can handle it. Right. Almost like I'm spiritually mature enough to handle all of this junk that is going into my body. Yeah. It may be that you're spiritually immature enough for it not to bother you. That might be what's really going on. Sin is not to be sanitized or befriended. Sin is to be slayed because it will kill you if you don't kill it. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The third way that we as Christians, as believers, justify sin is by claiming that I'm just that way. Say, I'm just that way. How many times have you heard a person who is mean-spirited and rude and justified by saying, I'm just honest. I'm just being honest. No, you're rude and being mean-spirited. You're not being honest because you can be honest and you can be kind as well. Right? You can speak the truth in love as the scriptures command, can't you? Have you ever heard someone uh, who lacks tact and sensitivity say, well, I'm just real. Yeah, yeah you're a real jerk, okay? <laughs> you don't have to be mean and rude and jerkish in order to be real and authentic and genuine, okay? You can be socially aware and you can be sensitive to understanding maybe how what you're about to say is going to affect the person that you're saying it to or the group that you're saying it to. Or have you ever heard someone excuse their behavior or lifestyle choices by saying, well, it runs in the family, so I can't help it. Anger just runs in the family. Addiction just runs in the family. Poverty just runs in the family, so I don't have any other choice. There are different buzzwords that circulate through Christian circles. And one of those buzzwords right now is messy Christianity. People describe their spiritual lives as messy, meaning... They are imperfect, flawed human beings, and that even though they have been saved, they can't help it but sin. Sometimes they'll drink a little too much and get drunk because they've had a long, stressful week and just say, well, my life is just messy, I'm just being real. Or maybe they're neglecting God and overworking themselves to the point of spiritual decay and just say, well, my life is messy and I can't really help it. Or maybe they're constantly getting offended by other people. 
Some believers are magnets for drama and crisis, aren't they? Drama just seems to surround them, and once they get out of one crisis situation, they run into another one. They don't even wait an hour. They get out of one dramatic crisis situation, and they run towards another one, even if they have nothing to do with it. Okay? They're addicted to drama and crisis. And they say, my life is messy. I love Jesus, but my life is just messy. To be honest, to be fair, most of the time people use the term messy describing their spiritual lives out of a good place. Right? They're trying to be real and honest and relate to their brothers and sisters who are already struggling. They're trying not to come across as holier than thou. But I think we need to be careful saying, my life is messy because it can be a way that we are sanitizing our sin. If we're not careful, it can turn into us minimizing our call to holiness and normalizing sin in our lives. Because Jesus did not die for a messy Christianity. He did not die so that we would have a license to sin. He conquered sin and granted us freedom from sin through Him. Listen to what 2 Timothy 1 and 9 says. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. You and I are called to holiness. You and I are called to be separate. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 and 17 says this, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. When God says, touch no unclean thing, one commentator that I read as, as I was preparing this message says this about what God means by that command, and he says this, believers must not participate in the sinful actions of their respective cultures. That's what the author was intending when he said, touch no unclean thing and I'll receive you. As the redeemed, we must exhibit and proclaim the new heart and new mind of God's people. In other words, we, talking about Christ followers, we do not follow culture. We are not subject to the values of the culture. Our morality is not to be influenced by the culture. Okay? Just because culture says it's right doesn't mean it's right. Just because culture says it's good and beautiful doesn't mean it's good and beautiful. Just because culture says it's wrong doesn't mean it's wrong. Because we, as believers, we are part of a different kingdom. And we are ruled by a different king. And so our rules come from the king in our kingdom. The way our culture comes from the king in our kingdom. And it's the culture that Jesus established in his kingdom. That's who we follow. We don't follow culture. We don't follow what's popular. We don't follow the latest trends. We follow Jesus because he established a different kingdom when he came to this earth. Jesus made it crystal clear that though we are in this world, we are not of this world. John 15, 19 says this, If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. 
That is why the world hates you. And when he talks about world, he's talking about the systems of the world, the cultures of the world, the MO of the world. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Messy Christianity subconsciously undermines our call to be set apart and holy. Messy Christianity can almost come across as if we're settling for sin, and that is totally unbiblical. We should never grow comfortable with our sin, even if it's a besetting sin that we deal with over and over and over. Even if it's that one sin, right? Everybody has that one sin where they repent, they go through prayers of deliverance, they, they, they do whatever they can, but they struggle. And they tend to fall back into that. We should never be comfortable, even if it's that one thing that we continue to fall over. It should always grieve us. It should always convict us. We should always feel the the sense of conviction when we fall into sin. The battle between our flesh and spirit is characterized as a battle. It's not a game, right? It's not a party. The way Paul characterizes the battle between the flesh and the spirit is a battle. That's why he tells us to put on the full armor of God. Okay? He doesn't say put on uh, uh, football pads, right? In a football, he says put on the full armor of God because you are in a war. You are in a battle. And so you need to be armed. You need to be shielded. And you need to be able to, to, to be effective in this battle. We don't ever want to become indifferent to the battle by saying, well... My life is just messy. As Christians, we are not identified by our mess. We are identified by our Messiah. Let me say that again. As Christians, we are not identified by our mess. We are identified by our Messiah. We are a new creation, which means old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. We have been given a new nature. We have been born again. We have been given a new mind. We have been given a new identity. We have been placed in a a new kingdom. We have been placed in a new uh, family. We have been grafted into the vine. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. All things become new and old things pass away. A messy Christianity waters down the power of the cross. Let's look at Galatians 5 and 13 again. And if I could have the worship team come up. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Christ went to the cross and purchased our freedom for us. Before Christ came into our life, we were all slaves to sin. But Christ purchased us from the grip of Satan when he paid for us to be free with his life. Okay, we live from a place of victory. We are not fighting for victory. We're not praying for victory. We're not striving for victory. We're not working for victory. We are we already have victory because Christ purchased our victory and won victory over sin, Satan and the devil and the flesh and all of those things. So as Christians, as believers, we fight from a place of victory. 
But we are not to use our freedom as license to sin, but are, are to use our freedom to serve one another. Paul tells us in this verse, you're not, you're not to use your freedom as a license to sin, but to serve one another. Let me ask you this. What if we used the extravagant measures some of us go to in order to sin and use those extravagant measures to serve one another, to love one another, to be there, to bear each other's burdens? What would it look like if we used the creative power some of us use in order to indulge in our flesh and we honed in all of that creativity we honed in all of that thought process. We honed in all of that energy. And we used that energy to better our world. We used that creative power to love people, to serve people, to be there for our neighbor, to be there for our neighborhood. What if we used that creative power to be a blessing on this earth? for this earth, for the people in this earth. What would our lives look like? What could our neighborhoods look like? What could our families look like? If we used the same energy, the creativity, and the power, but we aimed it in a different direction. Instead of aiming it at people for their destruction, we aimed it at people for their good. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying... Christ didn't set you free so that you could just do whatever you want. He set you free so that you can serve people because you're part of a different kingdom. Your master is different now. Your MO is different now. The system in which you function in is different now. The culture in, your, in which you function in is not the culture of this world. It's the culture of the kingdom. I love what Jonathan Routley writes concerning this. He says this, if a messy theology subtly permits a complacent mentality towards sin and a defeatist attitude towards struggle, then the cross has not, in its practical outworking, truly freed us. We're still enslaved to sin, perhaps not in position, but in practice. This messy lifestyle robs Jesus' sacrificial death of its power to enable believers to daily resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus didn't trade places with us on the cross so that we could live a mediocre life marked with messiness. That is not why Jesus traded places with you on the cross. He has something bigger for you. He has something more beautiful for you. He has something greater for you. And mediocrity is not one of the things that he went to the cross and he envisioned for your life. Man, I'm, I'm going through all this so my children, so that my church can just be mediocre. They can just live a messy spiritual life. No, he died so that we would truly believe that his grace is sufficient for us. So that we could truly believe that, that when he rose again, that he made a public spectacle of the devil and his demons. That when he ascended back to heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, that was him establishing rule and reign on the earth. And we are his representatives. Now, I also want you to know that we struggle and we do fall. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to come up here and say that we're perfect. 
Man, we mess up and we do fall. And we do need to be vulnerable and transparent. We do need to admit. We do need to confess our sins one to another. We do need to be real. We can't come up here and act like we're holier than thou and we don't have any struggles and we don't deal with sin. That's just not reality and that's not relatable. But at the same time, we need to be careful not to come across like the Holy Spirit isn't working in our lives and He isn't forming us to be more and more like Christ. We, we, can't, we can't forget that Christ has called us to be separate. That Christ has called us to be set apart. That, that, Christ has, that Christ has placed us in a new kingdom. We cannot forget that. And we cannot subconsciously sanitize or justify the sin in our lives. We just can't. Amen? Let's pray.